Hey there, this is Jason and Paul, and we encourage you to follow us on Instagram at stateofloveandtrust underscore pod, where we can continue the conversation with you. Thanks for listening. And now, let's get to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The State of Love and Trust, a Pearl Jam podcast. I am Jason Carapesi, alongside, as always, Paul Gilieri. Paul, we start today with the first of a, I guess if you include this, a six-part series. Mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like we're on A in here or something with a, with a mini-series or something. You know, I'm excited about what we have coming up for the listeners here, Jason. Um, this, this was something that I, we went deep down the rabbit hole with this. Yes. People we're talking about tribute bands here and as a Pearl Jam podcast, you'd say, well, let's talk about Pearl Jam. Well, we have, and we will continue to do so, but I feel like, especially right now with nothing happening and no Pearl Jam for anybody, but especially for those people who live in places that don't receive live Pearl Jam very often, the tribute band can be a welcome respite to the lack of Pearl Jam. So we thought it'd be interesting to talk to some of the premier bands in the game. And that's what we've done over the last uh, couple of weeks, interviewing all these bands. And so we're going to kind of let these fall out um, one by one over the next five weeks. Um, we've spoken to uh, 10 band uh, out of, I believe, Pennsylvania here in, in the United States. We have interviewed uh, Corduroy out of the Bay Area in California, Vitalogy out of Southern California, LA area, and then two bands from South America. Uh, we've got Red Mosquito out of Peru, and Black Circle out of Brazil, who many of you probably know. Um, so with that all said, before we get too deep in the weeds here, we have to remind you, please go on the old uh, iTunes there, subscribe, rate, review, all that good mm-hmm. stuff. Follow us on our socials, State of Love and Trust underscore pod on Instagram is where most of the stuff happens, but we have a Facebook page and Twitter handle as well. Get on there. Let us know. Booyah. Cool. That's out of the way. So, Paul, tribute bands, why do they exist? Why are they a thing? Because you can never get enough of a good thing. Right, Jason? I mean... End of the show. That's it. Crack it up. <laughs> We've done it. Crack the code. I crack the code. The matrix is open. Uh, you know, man, I feel like you, you fall in love with a song, and over time... As a musician, you use those songs to learn how to play an instrument. But more importantly, those songs become like a gateway uh, or a pathway, if you will, into this this new environment that you're going to be inhabiting for what could be the rest of your life. Nobody becomes a musician by just sitting in a room inventing songs and chords from scratch without ever having been inspired by something before, you know? And so 
I feel like a cover band is, is, is essentially what happens when you go back to the roots of what made you love music. You know what I mean? And it's the thrill of, of playing these songs and trying to make someone else feel through this music the way that it made you feel the first time you heard it. Or the second or the third or the 333rd. You know what I mean? I do. And that's actually similar to how I got into playing guitar. I was, oh God, what was I, 13? And I got a Fender Strat copy. Um, one of those, you know, one of those like little, the cheap Strat copy with the shitty like five watt amp from mm-hmm. Sam Ash for like 120 bucks. Yeah. The little PV, the little PV amp. It might have been a PV actually. Yeah, a little sounds like a little transistor radio. It's a fuzz yeah, they're t- coming out they're, of there. Oh, they're awful. It's one <laughs> channel, and you have to like just jack up the the volume to get any kind of distortion. And of course, that's too loud for your parents' house. But I had that, and I started basically buying tab books of a lot of Metallica, but Pearl Jam ten was there too. Rage, Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith, that kind of stuff. Trying to figure out how to play music that I really liked. That then informed me of how I played the guitar, not only just knowing how to play the songs, but the way that I played the guitar. And then from there, growing up and getting a little older, forming my first band, what did you do? You play cover songs. And that, what what song do you want to play? What song do you want to play? And then you start realizing what your common interests are. And from there, you start maybe creating your own stuff. And that's what I assume most people do when they get into music or get into playing music. So as far as tribute bands go, it's like the ultimate, right? Mm-hmm. So you as a group decide that this band has made such an impact on you in your musical passions, but also in how you play music that you find that it's the ultimate compliment, but not, not in a selfish way. Like you, you want to play music because of them and hopefully you can, I would imagine, because I'm in the, the few b- gigs that I've played in my life, you play like a cover of a song, people are jacked up for it. You feel good because they're dancing around and having a good time. So kind of distill that into one narrow focus of a band. And I guess it's why we have them. Uh, and we talk about bands that don't visit certain places a lot. Uh, that can be a huge deal. So there are many bands out there. We have, you know, you can go to a bar. And there'll be a cover band playing. Hell, there's some really uh, popular cover bands. I mean, Steel Panther was a cover band for a long time, just doing 80s rock. Exactly. They played at the Key Club, which is no longer a thing. It's now called like One Oak or something here in Los Angeles. And they became so popular. I actually went once and it was a great time. And then became so much popular, they started writing some original some music. Original music. It, it was it was humorous and it, and it's and it's um, vulgar vulgarity and, and yeah. glam rock um, uh, mentality. And it's, it's fun stuff. No, don't get me wrong, but, but they were a cover band in that they covered multiple different kinds of music. Right. But they were good at that thing. I feel like a tribute band, you have to be even more dialed in for one artist to, to succeed. You, it's easier to succeed if you're playing ACDC and Guns N' Roses, and Motley Crue, and Poison, because you can pull the best songs from each one of those bands. And You can, and- but but the demands and the expectations change when you become a right. tribute band, because now your demographic is not a fan of a genre. It's, very, it's a niche. It's very yes. narrow, like you just said. And these people have 
there's a connection to the music and they have an expectation around every song that you play. And if you don't do justice to the song, um, if you don't try, if, if you can't recreate what made that song, I should say makes, right? We're operating the present here. If you can't, if you can't recreate what makes that song so intimately relatable or um, kinetic, hey, per, it's personal. It's, it is personal. Like I mean, it, you know, in the case of Pearl Jam, you know, and this is just a, a sneak peek. I mean, one of the band members that we spoke to, and and, and the many interviews we were privileged to have, he talked about how the music of Pearl Jam was essentially the soundtrack of his life, you know, and, and he mentioned how you have a lot of these songs that essentially have this particularly personal endearment that, that he holds for, for these tracks. And so if I'm, if I'm playing in a tribute band and I'm playing that particular song, it's going to bring him back to that place. But if I don't do justice to the song or I play it out of key or, you know, I can't hit all the notes or whatever it is, then essentially it's like, don't even bother or people walk out at that point. You know what I mean? So you're absolutely right. The gravity, I think the, 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 the weight is certainly augmented. The bar is higher because mm-hmm. people, the people who are coming to see that kind of quote unquote cover band are looking to fill a need. If you see, if you go to a bar and you see a cover band, you aren't looking to fill a need you're you you will hear songs that you like you're like oh that was great and it, and it does a job but you don't most people don't go to a bar or a venue and go oh cool it's a it's a it's a kiss tribute band awesome I'll, I'll check it out most people who are going to see a tribute band are doing so intentionally oh yeah and so they'll seek it out they'll seek it out yeah um because like I said, you can go to any bar and they'll have live music. Hell, dude, Austin, Nashville, you walk in bar to bar to bar. There's someone playing the guitar or there's a three-piece band playing some blues. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what it is. It's going to be great. Almost almost always going to be great out of those two cities specifically. And that's fine. But if you are making a night of something, you say, I am going to this bar because this band is playing. You go there with intention. And if yeah. it's a band that you grew up um really having a personal connection to people that have, you know, listened to a song and it's hit them a certain way because it reminded them, like you said, of X, Y, and Z, or, you know, one of the band members we spoke to, you know, um, had a very bad experience with a friend of his um, passing away. And so the music was very influential to that person and that person influenced and, and, and uh, introduced the band to this band member. And so there was that personal connection that he loved the band, but it meant more because his buddy who passed away, you know, was the one that introduced him to it. So there's like a weight to it. So to be a tribute band, like we said, the bar is raised. So then as far as Pearl Jam tribute bands go, you know, we have spoken about, and some of these guys in these interviews have spoken about how Pearl Jam is, and I think I've said this too, it's a religious experience to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe 
at least two of them mentioned that they weren't very religious in the traditional sense. And that this was their kind of way of finding all those emotions and explaining them and having that kind of um, symbiotic experience of, of understanding between the band and themselves and their problems. We've said it before on those first, the, at least that first record, uh, but basically the entire catalog is their songs are being sung like at you, but they're listening to you at the same time. So what is it about a Pearl Jam tribute band that has to be great to you? Besides, you know, anyone can just cover Better Man, but to do the band justice, what are you looking out for? Well, if you're just in a cover band, I mean, I don't give a shit what you play. You know what I mean? I'm there to have a good time, and I'm just hoping to hear what the jukebox will play. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a Pearl Jam tribute band, and I have a ticket to go see you, there's, an, there's a spectacle here. And I'm listening, and I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if they could pull off mm. you know, nothing as it seems. Are they gonna are, are they gonna play something off uh, Riot Act tonight? You know, or, um, can he hit the notes in in hiding? You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm thinking of these types of things, and I'm thinking every time you hear the first note of the song, the first thought that goes through your mind is, "Ooh, let's see let's see what they can do with this one," or "Oh, I can't wait to see if they can pull off the solo." You know what I mean? And you don't think that when you just go see a generic cover band. So I think that. There's something about seeing a Pearl Jam tribute band, and you really hit the nail on the head, that especially if you're in an area where Pearl Jam has only been to your country or city uh, maybe once in the last five to ten years, you know what I mean? Or more. I mean, in some cases, much more. Uh, That tribute band is the closest thing that you're going to get to seeing live Pearl Jam for a very long time. And so there's a lot of, not only that, by the way, I don't mean to cut you off, but not only that, even if they come to your town often and you don't have a hundred dollars to spend, well, that's $15 on a a tribute band. You're absolutely right. I mean, it's, it's not a cheap ticket. No, I mean, um, and it's funny that you mentioned that actually, because soldier field, 1995, July 11th, Eddie looks up at the crowd and he's staring up at the uh, sky boxes and he, he says, oh, yeah. he says, you know, th- there's some fancy people in the sky box and they're blinking to us, you know, sending us a message up there and the crowd starts booing and whatnot. It's like, you know, life has a way of working itself out. You know, think about this for a sec, right? The, these are the rich, fancy people, right? And they got all the luxury, right? It looks to me like they're the farthest ones away from the stage and they're behind a fucking window and you hang in the trenches long enough, it pays off, right? And so, and then he smashes his, his uh, Telecaster. And so it was this really cool experience of being, yeah, and I can't afford the luxury box, but I'm like 15 rows, but right. you know, from the stage and they, where would I want to be other than here? That ticket now, what I love about the band is it, it's 10 clubs. So if you're, if you're, if you're a member of the 10 club, that's an option for you, right? You don't have to spend 10 grand to get right up on the rail to see Pearl Jam uh, because they're not going to sell those tickets for money like that, where a mm-hmm. lot of other acts will. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you can't see Pearl Jam for 15 bucks either. You know what I mean? It's going to cost you right. uh, no, no matter where you're, where, you, where you're sitting. And, and I respect that, you know, that, that that's a, uh, that's a reflection of what, what they've become in, in a great sense. I don't mean that in a, in a bad way or in a judgmental way. So as a tribute band, 
you're absolutely right. You know, you, this might be the closest thing that you can afford in order to see the band live. If, if they only come around once every five to eight years and the time they come around, you don't have the, the funds for it, then <laughs> this is the next best thing, right? Do you think um, it's important to be kind of like a hits player as a tribute band and play like a lot of 10 and verses? Or do you think it's more of a tribute to try and spread the catalog out and play some songs off Riot Act and Lightning Bolt and some of the deep cuts off of Yield, that kind of thing? Personally, or does um, it not matter? No, it does matter to me. And I'll tell you why. I think that if, if all you're going to do is play the hits, then you're really advertising yourself towards a crowd that may or may not be much of a passionate fan. I mean, to me, I feel like paying true tribute to the band would be somehow acknowledging every um, phase of the band, right? Or, or, or every, every part of the band's history. And so to say, well, we're only going to play songs off the first three albums. Okay, great. Well, I mean, I can round up anybody who's, you know, loves music from that era and they'll probably recognize the majority of the songs that you play. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're saying, hey, you know what? We're a tribute band, but we're only going to play songs off the first three albums. Then the casual fan will go there and have a ball. You know what I mean? But I think as a tribute band, you almost have to, you almost have to remind yourself sometimes that the people that are coming to see you, um, there's a lot more folks in that crowd that probably own binaural and avocado and backspacer and lightning bolt and gigaton than you, than you're giving them credit for. And so I, uh, you know, one of the tribute bands that we, we interviewed, uh, you know, after they heard dance of the clairvoyance, they made it a point to, what was it within 48 hours or 24, 24. hours it's within 24 hours to produce a, uh, a rendition of it on their own and it was outstanding, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so that to me, I, I think claimed is, it was better than the original. <laughs> yes, you did. Uh, you know, that to me is, is a reflection of what makes a tribute band so much more different, I guess, than, uh, than just a cover band. And so I, I think that if you're going to call yourselves a tribute band, you got to find ways to, it doesn't have to be, you know, the majority of your set is everything post yield. You know what I mean? But don't be afraid, you know, to go out there and grab one from, you know, uh, riot act or binaural or, or no code. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to just live in that, that prime space from 91 to 95, you know? Well, there's a balance too, because you know, some of these guys we've, we've, we all asked them or we asked all of them, I should say, uh, you know, obviously what are your favorite songs to play live? And then what songs do you wish you would play more? And, you know, a lot of the guys said, some of the deeper cuts from the latter half of the, of the catalog. And I feel like a lot of these bands, um, and I think it depends on where you're at because one of these bands is from a place where the fans are so rabid that they know everything that this band can play pretty much everything. In fact, one of their shows that I, I watched an entire show on their YouTube channel and they had an acoustic set to open the show before they went plugged in. Like full on O3 Mansfield. It was amazing. 
Yeah. And, but there's some places where maybe, and this is probably the same thing with every other band in reality and, and Pearl Jam, you play a certain venue or in a certain city. Um, and you know that they are maybe more fickle or more casual than other yeah. parts of the country. You can go to Mansfield or you can go to Philadelphia or you can go to, um, Montana or Seattle, and you can play a deep cut set and the crowd's going to go ape shit. But mm -hmm. there are certain towns where you can't really get away with that because they're a little bit more casual speaking. I, I, I've said this a long time ago. I don't remember which episode, but a couple tours ago, I learned that Metallica uses Spotify information like within a geofence to figure out what the most played songs are in that particular area to help define how they're going to do their set list. Nice. So if trapped under ice is crushing it in Vienna, Austria, they're going to add that to the mix. Nice. Which is kind of brilliant. If you think about it. Yeah. I mean, you, you give the people what they want to hear, right? Exactly. So I wonder how much these bands who I, I assume don't go out there, the tribute bands don't go out there to, make any money really and that's trying me i'm giving a couple beers and maybe i can leave a 20 bucks kind of thing you're playing for the passion of the music so I, I assume that they're not there to make money at the same time the venues that they go to want them to bring in an audience and if right. the audience is going to be bigger um if you play more of the early album hits right you have to make that balance and that's tricky you do you know you do? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, th th look, there's a song off every album Pearl Jam's ever done for somebody. You know what I mean? There's a song I think for so. somebody on every single one. So I think they, I can, they, they certainly could, um, any one of these bands, play a show where they play 20, 25 songs, like a lot of them claim they do, and pull off at least two songs per album. Mm -hmm. That's 22 songs. Now, granted, I mean, I, the majority of the folks there, they want to hear Even Flow and Alive and Jeremy and, you know, Corduroy and Better Man. Right. So you got 11 songs plus another 10 from, you know, the first few albums. But like, sure. span the catalog is it, yeah. would be my yeah. personal opinion. It's, it's really interesting to see the reactions you get when you've got uh, a band playing like Breaker Fall. And it's not one of those songs that is uh super popular i love right. the song but as do i when i saw one of these bands perform uh last year um they played uh in hiding and breaker fall and i was like whoa i was so excited because i kind of felt it felt like a kind of gig where um you'd hear a lot of hits mm -hmm. and i feel like they were trying to sprinkle in some of those more rare songs and i appreciated that i don't know that the rest of the audience cared as much as i did but I appreciate it. And if the rest of the audience is going to stick around because they know that they're going to hear you alive in two songs, then yes, exactly. Sprinkle them in baby. You know, absolutely. Completely agree. So what is, you know, final thought here, we're going to hear five interviews back to back to back to back to back to back. Um, I don't know how many backs that was, but there's five. And actually it, you said that five times. Did I really? Yeah. I, I'll have to go back and re-listen, but I thought it was six, maybe. At any rate, there's five, and <laughs> we're excited about all five. Uh, next week, we're going to start things off with the the band Black Circle from uh, Rio, Brazil. And um, 
what are you looking forward to most? Well, from everybody and then them specifically before we turn our attention to our lyric of the week. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing about what inspired the members of these bands to want to pay tribute to Pearl Jam in this way. Um, this podcast in a unique, very different sort of way, but also in many ways similarly, is our way, I suppose, of, of paying tribute to the yeah. band. Um, and so, you know, what is it about each one of these band members' love of Pearl Jam and, and their discovery of that music that compelled them to say, hey, you know what, let's get together and let's make, let's make music, but let's make Pearl Jam music and let's connect with Pearl Jam fans this way. Um, it really is, uh, it's a communal sharing of Pearl Jam's music in a way that is very different than going to see the band play live. And uh, because, you know, there you're, you're just a spectator. Whereas I feel like when you, you go and there's a, a, a tribute band playing Pearl Jam's music, um, you know, that band is essentially you, you know what I mean? Like they're also fans and uh, you know, while you might be sitting there saying, oh, these guys are living vicariously through through Pearl Jam's music, the reality is that they're sharing Pearl Jam's music with you as, as a fan, you know? And uh, when you sing along with them, you are just as much a part of that song as opposed to Pearl Jam making music for you. And when you sing along with the band, I, like when I sing along with Pearl Jam, I don't feel like I'm a part of the song as much as I am writing the wave of the song, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so... I don't know, man. I, I'm looking forward to kind of hearing what, what each member has to say about that. I'm also looking forward to hearing what some of the songs that you know you mentioned this, what songs are they interested in playing? What songs do they wish that they played more often or at all? Um, and then, of course, uh, what's the hardest song, you know, that uh, they have to play and so on and so on. Yeah, I'm looking forward to how these bands got together. Uh, because there's some really interesting stories that I can't wait for you guys uh, out there to to hear. Um, obviously, a band like Black Circle has kind of gotten pretty big in the last uh, in this year um, with the help of uh, Jill and Ed Vetter. So we we asked them about that, and I'm really looking forward to you guys hearing about that. And um, yeah, there's some very interesting stories. Uh, we got five bands from this entire Western Hemisphere. So look forward to it. Um, I know I am. I know you are, Paul. And uh, yeah, next week, Black Circle. And uh, up next, Lyric of the Week. All right, Paul, this week's Lyric of the Week comes from Vitalogy, and it comes from Whipping. All right, Paul, this, uh, this is one of those songs that I have always loved. Um, the metal punk fan in me has always really enjoyed the theme of this song as well as the music. Uh, it really gets the energy out. But this, we, we've kind of narrowed it down here 
to the last verse of the song. Um, where are you kind of seeing this uh, applied to uh, your mind and your your thought process right now? Okay, so I'm coming at it from a place of frustration, Jason. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I listened to this song the other day, it just kind of came on, and uh, I was... I was thinking about these lyrics within the greater context of what's happening around us. And I don't mean the coronavirus in this case. Um, I'm, I'm kind of thinking more along the lines of like the frustration that comes with having enough and feeling like we're the ones that are constantly being scarred and everybody else is continuing to exploit and, and run with that. Um, and this idea that eventually, you know, as a member of the public, there's this feeling that, sorry, but it's time to push back. Uh, 2016, it has been 80 years since a Supreme Court vacancy was nominated and confirmed in an election year. There is a long tradition that you don't do this in an election year, said by Ted Cruz. Uh, 2018, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we will wait to the next election. Lindsey Graham. Uh, I don't think we should be moving on a nominee in the last year of this president's term. I would say that if it was a Republican president. Marco Rubio, 2016. Um, a lifetime appointment that could dramatically impact individual freedoms and change the direction of the court for at least a generation is too important to get bogged down in politics. The American people shouldn't be denied a voice. Chuck Grassley, 2016. I could go on. I mean, I've got just dozens. You could go on about 50 times. Things. Here's my favorite one, though. <clears throat> the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president Mitch McConnell, 2016. And yet, here we are watching the GOP try to expedite filling a vacancy before a fallen justice's body is even cold, man. I mean, literally, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had literally just passed. N news of that had just passed. And when pressed for a statement, what do some of these people say? You know, uh, we owe it to, to, to the, our constituencies. We owe it to the American public to make sure that we, 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 we fulfill our promise and our pledge. And basically, it's just the hypocrisy is frustrating to me. And so, look, I, I, I'm not saying that I do not think conservative values have a place in America. I'm not saying that I don't think liberal values have a place in America. I'm saying I do believe firmly that there's room for both. But I take umbrage with the idea that we're going we're gonna to play by the rules that suit us and we're going to break them when they don't suit us. And I feel like this has become the norm. And I feel like there's one party that is consistently uh, either making them up as they go along or playing dirty when they feel like they can't win the right way. And then if somebody else, you know, if you get the tit for tat, then it's crying foul all over the place. And it's, it's frustrating me to the point where, um, you know, you listen to a song like this and it's really, really hard to say, 
look, I don't mean to push, but I'm being shoved right now. You know, I really feel like, like I'm being shoved. And as an American citizen, I feel the need for us as a population, us as, as a, as a national community to push back, you know, because I've had enough of this. <laughs> I don't know how you feel. Uh, the same. <laughs> Is that it? No. Um, I kind of thought this might be part of your, uh, your analysis here. Um, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. It's, it's hard not to think that this was not going to come because as soon as I heard about uh, Ginsburg's death, my wife goes, Oh no. And I go, Oh shit. Did like one of the dogs like die or something? Yeah. Cause we were, we were away. We were away for the weekend. And uh, she goes, no, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I go, oh, fuck, that's much worse. <laughs> so I, I take that and I wrap that in part of this thing that I was thinking about, which is, you know, this song, even before, this is even pre-Trump, this song has always, to me, been about the haves and the have-nots, mm-hmm. the powerful versus everybody else, the privileged versus the not privileged. And I mean, talk about, being pushed and turning that pushing into shoving or I'm sorry, in turn shoving someone else, you know, there's, there's another angle to it that I want to address real quick. Cause I think it's interesting. You know, we, we talk about interpersonal relationships with family and friends and how in the age of Trump and especially in the age of Fox news, going back even further than that, uh, our relationships have been kind of been crumbling in a bit. Um, there's a recent article in the Atlantic that talks about the Fox News language and how certain family members aren't talking to people anymore because they can't agree on reality. And I think some of us are aware of the political exhaustion that we experience um, and feel guilty maybe about pushing our agenda Uh, on our friends and family, but for many people, they feel justified in doing so. I feel justified in doing so when I do that. Um, They feel like they're, they're being shoved uh, unfairly by laws and lawmakers so that they feel they have to push back kind of like what you just said. And sorry, if constantly reminding you, my friends and family is annoying, but the world is crumbling around us. That's how it feels. So if I'm, you know, people have told me before personally, Jason, you really got to be careful sharing as much as you do on Facebook and Twitter because, you know, people, I don't give a fuck, man. This is bigger <laughs> than, than I'm not sharing misinformation. Uh, I'm sharing tried and true uh, as far as anybody can really tell well-written, intellectually smart and true ar- articles about what is happening around us. And it's a, it's also venting at the same time, trying to inspire people around who may be disillusioned, like, fuck it, you know, everything is going to hell. You know, no, there's things to fight for. Hmm. Ruth Bader Ginsburg dying and these, these um, senators going back on their word from just two years ago, four years yeah. ago, sorry, is it's a microcosm of the modern Republican. And if you're a Republican out there, you know, and you're a good one, then you should be mad too. Because if it was the other way around, I'd be pissed off as well. Because if you can't stand by your own word, then what the hell are you worth? You, you, are, you are admitting that you are a fraud. Um, 
And the problem is, is that we are all being pushed, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, we should, we're all being shoved. That's the thing. We're all, these, these people don't understand. You have to remind people that we are in the same boat, even people on the other side, the people who are voting for a world that doesn't exist anymore, voting for laws and culture that most of us find despicable and disrespectful. We try to convince these people that they are too being pushed. They're being conned. They're being tricked. They're being lied to. What can we do to show them the lights? How can they play mental gymnastics and believe what's clearly false, hypocritical, contradictory to their own core beliefs? I don't know, but we try because we realize that they too are being shoved. So, so many of us literally do not believe a single word that comes out of our leaders' mouths. Um, right or wrongly, both sides of the coin will argue that about their side. And by the way, my opinion uh, and viewpoint of these lyrics clearly speak to a certain viewpoint. Uh, I'm, you can tell where I'm coming from here. But the other side felt the same thing under different leadership, regardless Absolutely. of whether or not it was which, justified. Which, which is why they said, yeah. heading into 2016, hey, you know, we, we have a... a a, a sitting duck president, basically this, you know, yeah, yeah. The president that's not going to be fulfilling another term and we need to see this election play out. You know, mm -hmm. basically it was, uh, we don't think that we can get the justices that we want appointed under these circumstances. So we oppose them. But if the ro ro roles are reversed, then we forget all that, you know, cause now we absolutely have to, to push this through as soon as possible. But even, just, even the people who support these, Republican senators, they, they were crying, they, they were crying these lyrics about the Obama administration and all the Democrats for eight years, regardless of whether or not it was true, they were feeling these lyrics too. So you can feel these things from both areas, regardless Absolutely. of whether or not they're based in reality. So, Hey, that's a good song. If everybody can find a meaning, in yeah. it. but the difference is the scars coming to the last Note to tribute bands. Play this one. Yeah. <laughs> it's Yeah. Uh, we all got scars. They should have them too, right? Yep. This is a very unifying lyric because it's true. Coming back to my original point, the haves and the have nots, the powerful versus everybody else, the privileged versus the not. And the difference is these scars. The people fighting against the current leadership, Trump and all in the Republican Senate, they recognize that we all have scars and are fighting to make things equitable for everyone. The people supporting the current leadership refuse to acknowledge they even have scars. So while the other side might argue our leadership should mirror its electorate, they sure as hell don't act that way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how you can convince these people to recognize that they are being tricked. They are, they are suffering the same shit that everybody else is. You know, a, a liberal person in a city and a conservative person in a rural area might have the same lack of insurance, health insurance. But one of them understands what they could be getting if there were laws in place to help people and other person blames that person. It's ridiculous. Every one of these lines that, that, you know, don't mean to be pushed. I'm being shoved. I'm just like, you think we've had enough. I can't believe a thing. They want us to, we all got scars. They should have them too. What I just laid out there is exactly what we've got going on here. And it's, it's, it's so incredibly frustrating. And then you wrap the Ruth Bader Ginsburg thing on top of this just weighing it down like a shit sandwich. <laughs> Man, I really hope we have a, uh, a live version of this song that uh, evokes the emotion that we're all feeling right now. Oh, that, 
that that emotion of of looking up at uh, at a skybox and feeling like you're the have-nots and and the haves have so much and and you don't really mean to push but you feel like you're being shoved under the weight of all this uh, unfair uh, um, you know nefarious activity or in some cases oppression yeah yeah I think Soldier Field July 11 1995 is where we're going Jason ready. I already alluded to this before, and and this is exactly where the cut of of this track comes from. Uh, It's a From the Vault release, actually, so the sound is impeccable. Uh, What is iconic about this show? Well, it was the first night of the Monkey Wrench broadcast that the show, you know, pushed out on the radio via the band. And it it was a major moment in the band's history. It really is an iconic show, and it, it, it's something that I think was a, a classic boot. I mean, th- there's a couple of, of different versions out there. I think one of them has a, the logo. It looks like the Who's Live at Leeds, but it's Pearl Jam, Soldier Field. Um, there's a few different versions floating around out there, both vinyl and, um, and a CD. And, and this show is just epic. I mean, Brendan O'Brien comes out. He's on the keys at the end. And you got Ed, like I said, destroying the Telecaster. And they just crushed the song. I think this song was, given Eddie's speech, obviously, I mean, they were, it was the perfect setting and the perfect acknowledgement to serve as a, as a, a setup or a precursor to everything that this song is about on so many levels. So it's, it, it's the best version I think you'll ever hear of it. And this was a smack dab in the middle of their go fuck yourself Ticketmaster campaign. Uh-huh. So they exactly. were full of piss and vinegar. And uh for a long time this this show was the longest in Pearl Jam history up until probably a couple tours later. Mm-hmm. And uh a one of those shows that was so good you would still listen to it even though it wasn't soundboard quality until we got the vault release a couple years ago. Uh, that's how good it was. So let's head there. Let's head to Chicago and the uh, spaceship less soldier field in Chicago, July 11th, 1995.
you know, right before this song, they played Corduroy. And in between the songs, Ed talks about how they're just kind of renting the space from the Grateful Dead because uh, they had played uh, a very, very long set just about three or four days before. Uh, and that they found uh, they found joints just hanging about on the stage, left over, you know, as you do. And uh, told the audience to, you know, get comfortable. They're going to play a lot of songs, a lot of songs tonight. So just, you know, enjoy and be well. And then just launched into this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't hear that part uh, on the clip that we played for you. It's on actually the back end of the of the MP3 of Corduroy. But what a show. Imagine hearing this on your radio in 1995. Oh, man. So good. Crazy stuff, Jason. I'll say this too. You know, if memory serves me correct, uh, we had some some lightning, I think, for this show. I, I want to say that the weather was not in, in, in the best of form. I'll have to go back and double check. What is the deal with Chicago and lightning? I don't know, man. Um, but I, I could have sworn that there was some bad weather. And uh, I want to say that they, they did some, 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 some pyrotechnics, some fireworks in the sky, I believe. And uh, I don't know. I feel like, uh, you know, if we start pushing back, we might have something to celebrate one of these days too. Yeah. Um, I'm getting real sick of songs that apply to today. Yeah, <laughs> in all the wrong, all in the all wrong, wrong ways. ways. Yeah, no. You think 2020 can't get any worse, and then all of a sudden they say, "Hold 2020 my 2020 is the meme of all memes these days, my man. It's, well, gang, I don't know when you're listening to this, but uh, we are about 40-ish days from an election some some people are already out there voting my cousin literally voted today in person in virginia um yeah get out there pearl gem has their new voting initiative eddie was on sirius xm radio this weekend get out there make your voice heard please dear god get three friends to go with you mm-hmm. wear your masks wear a tinfoil hat wear a, ma- a, a, a shield wear a glove whatever you got to do mail it in walk it to the post office Bring it to Louis DeJoy's house. I don't care. Just make sure it's there. Love it. And we'll see you next week with the interview with Black Circle. Until then, you've been listening to The State of Love and Trust. Yeah.